We acknowledge the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the ongoing owners and custodians of the skies, land and water of Lutruwita, Tasmania. We pay respects to their elders, both past and present. Memory Palace is an online publication cataloguing Tasmanian culture, and this is the podcast of the same name. Memory Palace is about slowing down the response and remembering not to forget. It's about looking back so that we can look forward. It's then, now, and later. My name is Bryony Kidd, and I'm the editor of Memory Palace and the host of this podcast. Firstly, a quick explainer. This episode is a discussion around the content of the first issue of Memory Palace, which was published online in December 2021. To read that, if you haven't already, go to memory-palace.com.au. I have with me today the contributors for the first issue of the journal. So let's just go around. Um, so we've got Nancy. Hi, my name is Nancy Morrow-Flood. And I'm a performance artist and a theorist, and I'm based in South Hobart, Nipaluna, under Kunyani. And for the first issue, Nancy's written about a couple of works that were seen in the Unconformity Festival in Queenstown. So we'll get onto that a little bit later. But next we have Ella Kennedy. Ella, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a writer, director and producer based in Hobart and I've worked across TV, radio, print um, for the last more than 20 years. My latest um, short film was Flavor Swap, which you can find on SBS On Demand. Um, But otherwise, I just love going to see what's out and about in Tasmania. Excellent. Thank you. And Ella has written about the unconformity for this issue as well, so we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But next we have Paul McNally. Hi. Thanks. I'm the host of the Local Arts and Fantastic Music Program, um, and I concentrate on experimental music and what's going on around Hobart arts-wise, like going to see rock bands and orchestras and go to art exhibitions and going to plays and watching dance and I'm just kind of an art vulture really. Yes you certainly are and one of the things that um, made me think you would have some interesting things to say as a um, cultural critic I guess is that I often see you out and about at all sorts of cultural (laughs) events um, you and your, your partner Beatrice actually who is also a little bit involved with this project behind the scenes so I think you've got a really interesting perspective as someone who sees a lot of of Tasmanian art and is across a lot of a lot of art forms maybe. So I'm a filmmaker, theatre maker. I've had a festival, film festival, and I'm also um, obviously the editor of this publication. And I've written some of the content in this issue of the publication as well. So to just talk for a moment about what the publication is, it's called Memory Palace. It's about Tasmanian arts and culture. But the concept really is that it's about slowing down the conversation. There's been a real lack of cultural criticism in Tasmania for a while. Uh, We don't have very many outlets who are uh, providing those opportunities for writers. But also the cultural criticism that does exist tends to be very sort of publicity driven. So it's kind of you know, there might be a review in the local paper to quickly promote a show that's on. Uh, So that'll be written really quickly. It'll be really short. And essentially the purpose of it is publicity. 
So what I'm really interested in doing is providing more time to think and really reflect on what's happening and giving writers an opportunity to kind of think about things in a slightly deeper way. So that's a little bit of a preface, I suppose, to inform the conversation. Let's begin by talking about an event that was extremely notable on the Tasmanian arts uh, calendar in the last couple of months, and that was the Unconformity Festival in Queenstown. Uh, So we have a couple of pieces about that, um, but the first one and the longest one is a feature article by Ella Kennedy, uh, where she talks about her experience of going up to Queenstown for that for that long weekend. Ella, can you tell us a little bit about, first, I guess, what your expectations were of going up for the unconformity and really just what happened? Okay, well, I've, I've watched the unconformity happen from afar for, you know, many years now and my children were too small in past years to make the trip. And this year I suddenly thought, right, okay, I'm going to actually do it. I gathered up a couple of um, my female friends and we hit the road and planning to get there for the, you know, the big celebration on Friday night in the centre of town. But sadly, uh, 10 minutes out of town, my husband rang me to tell me that the festival had been cancelled. That kind of blindsided me. Southern Tasmania, we, we heard was going into lockdown thanks to a rogue Delta carrier who, um, you know, flown in illegally from New South Wales. And I thought, okay, yeah, Southern Tasmania, fine. But I kind of thought, we're driving north into freedom. <laughs> but they made the decision just before I arrived to cancel the festival. But, you know, hey, I have never really spent much time on the West Coast. I grew up in the Northwest Coast and the Northwest Coast and the West Coast are not at all the same thing. Because I had grown up in the Northwest, I think I really just, the West Coast wasn't a place that I was drawn to. I felt like I've done my time in remote northwestern Tasmanian places. I don't need to go and hang out there for fun. So, but in recent years, I'm kind of intrigued by Queenstown. It is, um, when you do start reading about it, it is kind of interesting. And previously, I'd only kind of done a whistle-stop tour on the way through to somewhere else. So we arrived and... You know, there was a lot of sad-looking people, you know, wandering around town. Um, the main street was all set up uh, but kind of empty and people were slowly already taking apart food stalls that had just really been put up. And, you know, I met the collision crew who'd obviously um, just done their... They did a performance at one thirty, I think, and we arrived at maybe 3.30-ish, 3.34. Made the announcement... Five minutes before it was going to start. Um, so the collision crew, meaning the performers for the dance work Collision, which was a Taz dance production. Taz dance and Guts dance. Yeah, and Nancy's written about that for the issue. But, yeah, sorry, keep going. I just wanted to clarify that. I know some of those guys and they were in the hotel where we were staying and they were at the bar and they were looking yeah. very forlorn and understandably because I know what it's like when you work really hard on something and then right at the very end it kind of gets pulled from underneath you. Yeah, so, I mean, but I thought we were here now. There were people around. It, it wasn't the bustling festival that that we'd kind of anticipated, but I think it would have, if the festival had continued, it kind of, the crowd would have built from that point in the afternoon. But, of course, I mean, it did kind of build, but not in the way that maybe the festival people anticipated. Yeah. So I wasn't unhappy. I mean, I was sad that the festival wasn't going ahead and that the tickets that I bought, you know, were no, no longer going to 
take me anywhere. But actually, it turned out to be a really nice opportunity to just spend some time in Queenstown and talk to lots of people. And the art trail was still open for business. So a lot of the um, main street shops uh, had, some of whom weren't really open normally, you know, had flung open their doors and had art hanging. Um, And so you could just wander around town, lots of little nooks and crannies looking at art. And, you know, that was that was quite fun. Mm. So I just um, will make the point now that the other two contributors um, for the issue, Paul and Nancy, who are here with us, you also were there for the unconformity, I believe. Yes, it seems like we've all arrived on different days, perhaps, which is uh, gives another kind of yeah. perspective. I arrived on Thursday lunchtime. So for the premiere of Collision of Taz Dance and before the opening night. And so you got a little bit more festival in. I was watching every everyone yeah, install everything and, and, and kind of getting the excitement with the lurking possibility in the background that the rogue uh, ice dealer was kind of spreading his germs or what have you. I wasn't surprised when, when the lockdown happened, let's say, because of the ambivalent um, situation that I was kind of seeing lurking. And yeah. you arrived yeah. the day before, was that right? Um, I think it was either Thursday morning or Wednesday night. Um, we just wanted to hang out in Queenstown and chill, enjoy the, the rain, enjoy the quiet, um, suss out the, the town, go for a wander around before it got crowded, before things started getting heavy. And so, yeah, it was nice because I'm friendly with a, a bunch of the organisers and people who are setting up and some of the artists. So it was lovely walking down the street and going, ah, hey, there's, there's Tom, there's Lou, there's, you know, there's um, Sharky and just... Just seeing people sort of coming together to to do this thing and seeing people seeing all of the artists really sort of that I, I knew and was friendly with sort of turning up at one after another and seeing it building, but also getting there before the the locals got squashed, I guess for want of a better word. Um, I just wanted to get a hang out in the town and sort of, you know, fling some... What do you mean squashed, as in, like, pushed to the side or something like that? Well, I think the the population would have doubled with the the amount of people turning up to the unconformity, and so it would be mostly people there for the festival and... and Yeah. That's an interesting point, actually. Past festivals that I've been to, the the places were closed, like the, the local shops had been closed. Um, one of the first ones that I saw, I think they'd run out of food for the, the unconformity. It was a much smaller thing. But um, we were looking around to see what places we could get a, a pie or a pizza or something like that from, and they were all closed. And So, yeah, we wanted to hang out and sort of go to some of the restaurants and buy a pie. And you know, So you're kind of saying that in the past... When you went to the festival, you felt like maybe the the authentic Queenstown might have been like a little bit not part of it. But this time, was it? I mean, it's hard to tell, obviously, because most of the festival got cancelled. But did you feel that it was a different experience this time? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think the idea of it was that Queenstown is a venue. It's not a place. It's not a cultural place that is being celebrated. It's a venue that the unconformity was held at because mm. there's a lot of space um, and not a lot of people and it's an adventure to go across and, you know, if yeah. you're there, then you're there for the festival. Um, but I think the the organisers have had woken up to the fact that there is there are people here and, you know, they can 
be involved and they can benefit from it as well. Yeah. Um, but I think I think that they could go further in doing that. I mean, the thing that struck me, having not been to a previous unconformity or even spent much time in Queenstown, was that there are actually a lot of local artists. Like, mm. if I compare it to where I come from in the northwest, I think there's many more artists on the ground that are drawn, obviously drawn to that environment. Um, you know, I think some of it is cheap housing, some of it is the environment, some of them just want to be isolated. Like, it attracts, it clearly attracts us that... It, you know, yeah. different kinds of people for different reasons. It's fascinating and it, it's because it's a much more kind of physically dramatic place than, say, the northwest coast, which can be absolutely beautiful, but it, its kind of harshness is sort of a little bit more buried, whereas Queenstown kind of wears it like this ugly theatrical, scar. Theatrical, yeah. Yeah, so it, it immediately feels theatrical. From the minute you drive into it, you kind of feel like you're in a little theatre because of the way that you're surrounded by hills. I did meet uh, Ray Arnold and but I did a bit more digging on him after the festival and just reading about... I think he partly left Hobart because, you know, he felt like Mona sucked a lot of the oxygen out of <laughs> the artistic scene. And, like, I know but that's something that is not... That yeah. I've heard before that they they're so dominating that you feel like you don't have. I mean, that's not my experience. I'm, I don't operate in their space, but uh, I kind of thought that was interesting that he then chose that place to go to, and and then now we're having this conversation about are we just you know doing a little bit of a Mona in Queenstown now? Now having been to previous festivals, I don't really know because yeah. actually. I met a lot of people who'd come back for the festival that were local. Like there are a lot of ex-locals there. Um, mm. I didn't, obviously, po probably partly because it was cancelled, there weren't as many people there full stop. But I did meet locals too. I met quite a lot of locals. Well, so. what struck me was the Linda Cafe before you drive in, well, if you drove in the way I drove yes. in, which is you've got three options. Um, yes, it was fantastic. Like they'd really done it up compared to one year ago where it was still just... An a, abandoned a, shell. Yeah, yeah. So that was really quite exciting and you saw like... Um, a sculpture, you know, this kind of strange, um, well, kind of Hannah Hock, Dada, mutant sculpture, and you would go in. Um, so it's now it's a cafe, and they also ha serve Bloody Mary. So it's like a fantastic. So that's that grey building that's really down. sort of gothic looking and yeah. dere yes. derelict. You know, they just opened actually. They just got their liquor license an hour before we arrived. So <laughs> oh, good really, timing. You, you could feel the, you know, it was palpable the excitement that, um, <laughs> you know, that yeah, this was a new, a new business, a new establishment. That's yeah. what came across really interestingly in Ella's piece too, was all of the sort of improvised and new sort of business ideas and art galleries and, you know, let's put this thing here and let's do this thing here. And it's sort of really interesting because I think that's what sort of arts bureaucrats would love to have happen, like in central Hobart, say, or in various places, but it's actually not that easy to create that kind of situation so something seems to be working well where that is sort of naturally taking place or developing yeah so I didn't go to the unconformity this year and I have never been to it so I, I sort of was feeling really jealous when all of my friends were going um, up for it this year and then I kind of felt guilty like I jinxed it or something when I heard it had been cancelled it was kind of like oh my god they're all up there and now it's cancelled how devastating but from you you guys who are actually there uh, it sort of sounds like, okay, there was a, an element of shock around it and disappointment, obviously, but how soon did the mood sort of shift into something sort of more accepting and maybe some kind of positivity return? I think it was pretty quick. Like, oh, I'd I, left, actually, before. Oh, okay. <laughs> left before I, I got Oh, you hightailed it out of there. <laughs> I, I was there on the Friday, probably left about 
12 noon. So the news had come just after we had left. But, I mean, like I said, I anticipated it. But, um, and I'd actually gone to, to Strawn and up to Tulla. But, um, oh, okay, so you actually just had the festival that was still the festival. You didn't have the disappointing part no, of it. No, okay, I that's didn't great. see that. And I just wanted to say what I also saw was compared to when I went a year ago, I just generally went to Queenstown, was the locals seemed to anticipate that they'd have a lot of out-of-towners um, walking around. So we'd say drive to the lookout and there was, I don't know if the guy would always be sitting on his veranda, but it seemed like they'd all got ready for having these people roaming um, about. And I decided to stay at the Empire Hotel, which is, you know, the classic, the place to stay, um, I think, anyway, it's you know, the, um, for various reasons. I kept kind of bumping into people I knew from elsewhere, kept saying, oh, I just want to go and talk to the locals, and I couldn't kind of drag my way <laughs> yeah, from, like, seeing people, because it's also nice to see people. Um, but I wanted to go and, like, go into the pool room and hang out with the locals, but it's kind of like I, it was, even though I tried, it was very, like, this really strange kind of like quicksand experience but you could walking around I saw the locals basically trying to get people's eye like to say hello and I think people that were probably a bit less sensitive to the um, environment of Queenstown it just went completely over their their Mm. head which I thought was um, interesting and even just having dinner at the empire and you know the service is clearly not a you know a metropolitan standard and that's fine because you're in Queenstown you know it's uh, so it's interesting and I think those things will have to be you know these micro what micro fascisms or micro uh, things say microaggressions but it doesn't sound like aggressions really just um, undercurrents yeah undercurrents kind of if you did a forensic analysis which I that's what was um, what I wanted to share, actually. I experienced a, a range of um, responses from uh, the people who were living there. Um, we did talk to one guy who was running a, a um, he had T-shirts and, and that kind of stuff in a store there, and he seemed a bit grumpy about it. And the, the bakery seemed to be taking it in their stride. They were open and they were ready to, to feed the masses. And um, at one of the sort of pre party things. There were a lot of younger people who were, um, there was one young woman who was celebrating her birthday and she thought it was the best thing ever that she was finally able to go to the unconformity and really looking forward to to seeing what people brought and Uh what fun there was to have. So I I think that some people were really excited by it and some people needed a bit more um, uh, coddling maybe or sort of more discussion or yeah, who mm. knows? So, Ella, what was your experience of, of that sort of tension that I guess Nancy and Paul are both alluding to of the locals sort of wanting to interact or visitors wanting to interact with locals but there being a sort of maybe separation of some kind? Because I like talking to everybody, I didn't really notice it so much. Mm. I was probably looking around looking for people to talk to um, and I was kind of keen to find out from people who who lived there, what they thought of, you know, how they felt about the festival Mm. because, look, hats off to, um, you know, Travis Diddy and his team for even for mounting it in the first place because I know how challenging it can be in small communities to bring something 
that it's a bit like Mona. Like, not everything at the Unconformity was, is going to be everyone's cup of tea. Uh, I don't think everyone is going to embrace Taz Dancer's performance or some of the more esoteric pieces of art. Absolutely not. But is it nice that it's there? Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. like, my kids can go to Mona and just appreciate things on a very basic level. And I think that, you know, if we can bring some of that to a place like Queenstown that is often forgotten, let's face it, because it does... Even really, it's only three and a half hours away. It feels like it's a long way away. I mean, I have to say, when I was in the pub, like, you know, there's a rowdy bunch of blokes that are carrying on as usual, like, that clearly could not give a fuck about whether the festival was on or not, and that's fine. Like, it's their pub. They should be there celebrating. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like, oh, okay, the, you know, the arty people are going to come in now and, you know. But, you know, you you do have to wonder... Obviously, the tyres were lit. You know, mm, that was our kind yeah. of entrance into Friday. Uh, you know, Which added to the theatre drama. Well, it did. But, you know, experience. I was just thinking, holy shit, I'm going out to Queenstown. I'm going to have to wear a mask, not because of COVID, because somebody's lit tyres and there's toxic fumes in the atmosphere. And I immediately just thought, you know, someone just wants all those arty buggers to fuck off back to where they came from. Well, perhaps that was their idea of contributing. Well, yeah. You know, but then yeah. on the other hand, it could be a rogue <laughs> artist going, here's a way to, you know, yeah. you know create art on a big scene. I mean, it was I kind quite of. a large scale. It um, is. It was a. Display, yeah. <laughs> but like I think you might allude to it in your piece. But Queenstown is known for the environmental devastation that has sort of turned into art in some ways. And how can you make a comment on that more strongly than actually setting on fire some tires? <laughs> I mean, you know, like that sort of encapsulates the entire um, history of that place, I suppose. And in just some the ways. vast number of tires of which they said were set alight was also hard. Well, there was a photo also. of the tyres in the, next, the exhibition at the Q Bank Gallery. <laughs> so it was sort <laughs> of not, like, here's not the on tires. fire. The not on fire, pre fire. Yeah. And then you could look up to the skyline and see them, oh see God. those toxic fumes coming out of the hills. So it made me think of my favourite, one of my favourite movies, Derek Jarman's Jubilee, where they have mm. the fire, the tyres on fire and the car on fire. And yeah. There's a ballet dancer, you know, doing her adage in front of it. And I thought, oh, if only I brought my ballet costume, oh, I could have actually it. had a fantastic backdrop and done my own version. But uh, Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. we don't want to um, give anyone ideas, but, like, it, yeah, it really did seem like a part of the festival in a very weird way. Yeah. Uh, it was a response, whatever was, that yeah, was. It, it was, was a response, a, a definitely. Response. I can't imagine it just happening in, randomly at another moment. No. But, I mean, in the end, I think you can't please all the people all the time. And I think um, I noticed on Facebook that um, they are holding a meeting, Travis Titty and his team are holding a meeting in Queenstown to talk about unconformity going Mm, forward. And nor do you want to please all the people all the time. No, absolutely. That would be a disaster. You want to consult and make, you know, hear different voices. But, you know, you don't want to govern like ScoMo by, you know... Mm. popularity polls I don't think that's what people think what oh. art should be sure but, some people you don't want to please you're quite happy to annoy well that's right and that's part of art isn't it to to get up people's noses and I'm you know I can I can imagine you know people I know seeing say the seed installation which is you know the abandoned cars that have been kind of jammed into the ground and you know they've got plants coming out of them and there was a soundscape that was meant to operate during the festival but they turned it off because the festival was off oh god that's awful isn't it but oh uh, but the, the installation is permanent it will be there and they are kind of cars that were found scattered around the west coast somewhere and they've been put into this installation like a tribute to the kind of 
the waste and the re you know rebirth of the whole area and it and you can imagine your grandma seeing it and going you know they should take that old crap to the tip uh but actually you know it's an interesting i'm mean, happy to wander around it's not necessarily everyone's cup of tea but it is an interesting comment on what's going on in that place and somebody's thought about it and created it and i think that's great I think so too. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't there to see it, but hopefully I might get up there at some point when, when that work is still um, still there. So maybe we should talk really quickly about Collision because that's one of the shows that did go ahead and Nancy's written about it a little bit for the issue of Memory Palace. Nancy, did you find that that was a really significant production, I guess, in the Tasmanian dance context? Yes. It was particularly exciting that Taz Dance and Guts Dance had a collaboration with Pete Matilla, who is a blacksmith. Uh, obviously, he's an artist in his own right, but it was, in a sense, a, a expanded set design and an industrial one at that in Queenstown, an industrial, uh, well, a town from the Industrial Revolution, you could say. So it really was situated quite well for the event. Paul and Ella, did you either of you manage to see that show? Yeah, um, I saw it on the Thursday night. In the that was one. the premiere. Yeah, I was yeah really excited to see Pete Matilla's sculpture, um, which is this unbelievably massive gate with all of these flourish and and turns. It's amazing what he does with, with metal. It, it doesn't look like metal anymore at all. It looks very organic almost. Mm. Or even like elemental, like fire. And Yeah, I can go on about that. But but also to see Taz dance and see this fairly abstract um, dance relating to this, to the gate and yeah, just seeing that, that style of dance or that style of performance happening was, was beautiful. I was really excited by that. I was particularly um, interested or provoked perhaps by um, the tap dancing moment. I do talk a bit about it in the piece, but um, I actually, well, it's been edited. But uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is it brought in a whole... Um, it brought in a whole lot of thoughts for me about the context in which contemporary dance sits in Australia generally and especially in Tasmania. So it doesn't really pull a crowd. And um, it was Taz Dance, um, which, you know, were the main producers of the work. Um, their artistic director had um, recently passed away. And so my background is in dance Um and I remember coming back to Tasmania after being away for quite a long time and I talked to Annie Grieg and she basically sat down and went, you're too experimental, I want bums on seats. Because <laughs> um, I was, uh, which was, what what I'm saying is if this is, you know, very much a memory palace, what I was interested in that um, the contemporary dance doesn't necessarily uh, get a lot of bums on seats and nor maybe it should not try to do so. Um, but the event was sold out. Itself. Like, yes, you couldn't get any more have, people in there. Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't under the... This was under a, a different artistic director, but mm. just bringing in that Sorry. history and the, ta the tap dance part, which often um, contemporary dance uh, it, it tries to veer away from this kind of secret, um, hidden 
tradition of the circus and vaudeville arts in dance and theatre in Australia especially is often always kind of uh, not necessarily uh, valued. And with, with that tap dancing moment, I thought it was such a potential to what, wh- where it could have gone with, obviously, the metal and the sparks. Um, and then I, I kind of thought of, uh, you know, other performers from the early 20th century that had their kind of vaudeville routines that would, you know, it was more of a novelty that they would tap with sparks. But I, I wondered where that could have gone because um, I talked to Pete uh, Matilda about the collaboration and obviously there was a lot of uh, restrictions of how much they could collaborate with COVID but um, he said that it was interesting because the collaboration started where they all just wanted to come and observe him doing you know the movements of the blacksmith and he said he found that like a bit like corny uh and then he was like actually now can I come and watch you and they were like oh you know so it's kind of like it was an interesting you know that he had to kind of push his uh, need for symbiosis but yeah I could clearly see the the dance in in that in that gateway sculpture mm. and I'm just curious um yeah where they could really really take that yeah, like I'm really interested in what you're saying about the vaudeville, vaudevillian traditions because um, I think that is something I've rarely ever heard discussed in the context of contemporary dance in Australia or certainly in Tasmania. Um, but also you talk a bit in the piece about the sort of dramaturgy of the work um, and I think that's a really interesting thing for people to consider if they read your review um, to sort of go into more. But just really briefly, what was your thought around that? So... On entering the space, they, um, apart from the obvious scanning, which we need to do now or um, registering formally that you've been in that place, um, the ushers were asking us, oh, please, when you come in, and it was almost between it was a request or a command, you weren't exactly sure, please keep moving around the space, don't stand still. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, this kind of enforced participation, which um, it's interesting because then I started to think, okay, so who is moving around and who, who's choosing not to and who's kind of half in between, like, oh, I should be moving around so I seem like I'm supporting the work because, you know, they're amazing dancers and um, even, you know, the fact that this work was there it was a great offering. But at the same time kind of going, oh, this kind of contract, this performance contract or this convention that's made when you walk into a well, dance or theatre space is that usually you need to be sat still or unless it's a more kind of cabaret environment, you can get up and move around, you know, to the bar and or talk. But it didn't have any of those signposts there to do that. So I think that it could have um, been teased out a bit more. Um, how did you feel? Did you move around? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the gate uh, was in the middle of the room, sort of obscured the other half of the room, and the dancers would go through and through the gate, and you mm. didn't go through one particular entrance like it was sort of... Yeah. And so they would go through to the other side, and you couldn't see them. So I thought, oh, hang on, is this a hint? And so I, I wandered around and mm. tried to get a nice angle where I could see what was going on on one side where and see through see the gate and right. see a little bit of the other yeah. side. So. so I'm wondering if that could have been pushed, that, you know, the whole audience would rush then to the other side mm. of the gate, or, you know, playing with that idea that's so that there wasn't this 
were awkward, mm. like, oh, I should move around. And how many walking. shows are where they're supposed to be of it? Because I guess that sort of thing particularly is the sort of thing that evolves as a run goes on. Yeah, and it it's a new work. It can yeah. be very hard in Tasmania when there's always pretty short runs to, mm. to finesse that sort of stuff that you can't really do without the audience being there. Yes. We'll move on from the, from the unconformity in a moment, but I just wanted to ask Ella whether you had any thoughts about, because um, I like the style of your your article where it's a little bit personal, a little bit kind of gonzo, I suppose, and it and you go into all sorts of things that are really not necessarily to do with the unconformity, but to do with Tasmanian culture more broadly and your experience of certain things. Um, what do you think of that idea? I mean, I guess what your article shows is almost like a cultural tour with sort of formal and informal elements. So it's sort of curated by the festival and it's self-curated as well. Um, is that something that you think would inform your approach to, I suppose, future cultural tourism within the state? That kind of, um, you know, making time for those sort of spontaneous elements as well? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, it absolutely happened organically that weekend where I obviously thought I was going for a set menu, so to speak, and that didn't end up happening. And and then you just sort of go with the flow and, you know, there were, you know, I mean, like you two were saying, I have to say that my, <laughs> my fellow travellers kept on laughing because I did meet a zillion people I knew in Queenstown and that never happens to me. But obviously there was a lot of people who had some vague connection to the arts they were all kind of gathered there and they were quite thick on the ground. I think if there was, as an upside of the festival not going ahead is that you know, I just roamed around Queenstown and had a look around at things that maybe I wouldn't have got to because I would have been too busy, you know, doing the actual program um, and spending a lot of time just talking to people and getting a sense of the place. And I think, I mean, that's always a fun way to travel and it is probably the way I approach travel uh, when I go overseas, not that I've done that for a long time, but um, but it's something that I probably don't do in my own state because, you know, it's just where I live, you know, it's not that interesting, but actually it is. And, you know, as I mentioned in the article, you know, the, I had worked on a documentary, you know, researching the Franklin Dam campaign. And even though I knew about that, when I knew some of the detail about what, you know, the machinations of how they actually made that blockade happen and some of the extreme aggression that went on between, you know, the greenies, so-called greenies and locals. But also it wasn't it wasn't as cut and dried as that. Lots of the locals were um, were on side with the greenies and that caused a massive rift in the community. And, you know, when I went on this little trip and we ended up in Strawn for the second night, I kind of, you know, I met a woman who basically gave me that that experience. She said, you know, I was here and this happened to me. And, you know, it made it really, like, people are still living the hangover of those environmental campaigns. I don't think I realised when I was researching it from Hobart and talking to Hobart-based campaigners, like, how raw that sort of history is for local people. Can I just add add to that, which kind of feeds back into that vaudeville or cabaret side, is that Eartha Kitt um, was touring at um, the casino at the time of the Franklin and actually did a lot for the international um, presence and, in a sense, really helped bring that Franklin campaign to a world stage. Wow. And um, I think, you know, that's a, a, 
a bit of history that you know is not necessarily um, always. I need. I need someone to write an article about that. Yeah, oh, that's very I interesting. Will. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember I was in grade one, and my friend whose father was Peter. Dombroskis came and told me that she'd met a lady at the casino because my mum worked at the casino and I was like, oh, great. Like I remember being <laughs> like kind of talking about her presence, you know, the cat the cat lady in town, yeah, who really um, was absolutely captivated by, yeah, the Franklin. And Did you just call so, her as a kid the cat lady yes. in town? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I mean, just I think to kind of bring that those cultural elements in. Yeah. No, that's yeah. that's a really good addition because I think that was the other thing that was great in Ella's piece was how all these disparate things kind of come together. And even when you were talking about meeting your childhood GP there, who was <laughs> had his packet of sayos and was you know talking about something and like all these weird connections that just keep coming around in a small place like Tasmania. Um, yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? Because like we try and represent certain ideas of what the history is, but when, as you say, you go there and it's it's more subtle and more complicated than it appears to be from the surface. Um, okay, so before we start talking about this next uh, piece of art, which is the film um, Nitram, I just want to give a warning that it discusses the true events of the Port Arthur Massacre in Tasmania in 1996. Um, So there will be people listening who may not want to listen to a discussion around that. Um, And if so, please fast forward through and I will have in the show notes um, the times for when we're talking about different things in this podcast. So you'll be able to just skip ahead to the next section if you do not wish to hear about this film. Um, so it's necessary to say that because what happened in Port, Port Arthur in Tasmania in 1996 is still very fresh in a lot of people's memories. It certainly doesn't feel like that long ago to me. And I also know that discussions of violence and trauma can be really triggering for people as well, so try and be sensitive to that. Um, but I did want to talk about the film in in Memory Palace and I did want us to talk about it because I think... You know, it's a culturally very significant film. It's a very high-profile project. There's a lot of discussion around the country about it internationally, and it only seems right that we here in Tasmania would also, you know, discuss it or talk about it or think about it a little bit, even if it's just to say, oh, I don't like that or I don't want to watch it or whatever the case may be. So obviously I've written a review of the film for this issue of the magazine, Um Just very briefly, um, Justin Kurzel is the director of the film um, and it tells the story of Nitram, who is essentially um, based on the real-life killer in the Port Arthur Massacre, but the film opts not to use his actual name and, in fact, um, Nitram uh, is referred to by that name, which is, um, you know, the real killer's first name but spelt backwards. So that's a sort of, I guess, nod from the filmmakers to the sensitivities of um, publicising or continuing to talk about these figures who are so so violent and potentially motivated by notoriety. Um, so, yeah, for that reason, it's quite hard to talk about the film as well because we certainly don't want to feed into that notoriety. 
So I know everyone here has watched the film has, and it, it's now on Stan. It's just started streaming on Stan. I think it's still in cinemas as well. Does anyone want to kick off with any thoughts about it, either about my analysis of it or just how you felt about it? I think that I, I really um, I agree with a lot of your review. I think it is a, a really um, strong film. I felt quite cross reading a lot of the media earlier in the piece saying that it should have been made because I think, you know, art is one of the ways that we understand what, what's happened in the past and what might happen in the future. It is um, the Port Arthur Massacre does seem to occupy a special space that other, you know, traumatic events around the world don't seem to be put in the same category by other people in terms of, you know, we find it perfectly acceptable to uh, make a million films about the Holocaust, Mm. but this one incident that happened in Tasmania, which is obviously horrific and transforming, it's there's been a very any time anyone kind of approaches anything about it there's all there's a lot of outcry and mm. i understand there's a lot of hurting people but i mean as as we discussed previously you know we're not going to please all the people all the time with art and that's not really art's role um for example i um you know justin kurtzel and sean grant previously made the snowtown murders uh i haven't watched that i decided i didn't want to know about it uh but i did want to know what they did with this film. I mean, because I think, you know, they're both strong filmmakers and I wanted to see what they did with it. They've made something that initially I found fascinating. Um, well, not fascinating, but I was happy to watch it. I was kind of intrigued to find out, you know, how they portrayed this person that ended up doing something as horrific as he did. Like, how do you, I mean, I think all of us want to know, how do you get to that point? Because most of us don't. Was it just that? you know, our guns laws were lax. What, what was it about him? And I think previously I have avoided, like I, have, I know there are books written about him and there's been lots of feature articles. I've probably avoided that. Mm. Um, but I felt ready to kind of engage with it and see what they did. And for the most part, I reckon for like two-thirds of the film, I was, I was very happy to kind of to watch and sort of be immersed in that world and trying to understand it. Um, there is a point when, I guess, once he starts to buy guns when I almost felt like I'd had enough and like, okay, I know what's going to happen now. I'm kind of checking out because I felt like I got enough out of it. But actually reading your review, I wondered whether the reason that I was happy to sit with it for so long was that it's not shot in Hobart, which is obviously where these events happened Mm. um, because obviously it was too controversial to shoot in Tasmania. Um, And... I wonder if I would have felt differently if I'd seen, um, like you said, like you apparently used to hang out in North Hobart, if I'd seen that being displayed on screen, how I would feel about it. Mm. And I might feel quite different about the film from the get-go if I recognised the places that it was being filmed in. When you get to the end and, you know, there's a double for Port Arthur there, which is quite clearly not Port Port Arthur, but it it is illustrative. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think in that way the film operates kind of on a... It's about examining a story rather than truth-telling. Mm, do you know what I yep, mean? And I yep. think actually that different location kind of enables it to do that in a useful way. I think that's what I was trying to get at in my review. Like, I think you've s- yeah. said that well. Um, and that, to me, did a, did make it possible for me to sort of watch it and 
feel that it wasn't disrespectful, I guess. But just to backtrack a tiny bit before we ask Nancy and Paul to um, contribute, um, what I also had in my mind, and I have quite a long preamble in the reviews to sort of set up the sort of justification for reviewing it at all in a way, is that I know that there's some people from, you know, the Tasman Peninsula and the area who were very strongly against the film being made at all. And um, Neil Triffitt, who's a Tasmanian filmmaker who grew up in that area, wrote a piece where he was, um, before the film came out, um, talking about feeling sort of uncomfortable about it. Um, I don't know exactly how he feels about it now, but, like, there there are all of those sensitivities around it. The state cinema didn't promote it in the normal way. But then, as you say, Ella... um, there are so many atrocities in the history of this state um, that we do not sort of treat with the same, uh, well, some of them we don't even really mention. And I'm thinking about the sort of um, atrocities against the Tasmanian Aboriginal people Like we often don't really even talk about them, let alone sort of treat them with kid gloves. So, And I have to say on that note um, that the only film that I've ever really, really wanted to walk out of is The Nightingale. Mm. Uh, I... I thought, I'm going to have to leave. I just cannot keep watching this. Yeah. But I stayed because I went to a screening where there'd been an Aboriginal welcome to country and they'd kind of sanctioned it. And I thought, well, no, I have to sit through this. And, um, mm. you know, I have to kind of get my head around this this story. But, yeah, I mean, because that is seriously one of the most... I don't know whether any of you have seen it, but it is one of the most violent films I've ever seen in a kind of... Yeah. Viscerally um, kind of traumatic way. I think for me the power of that film was in the, the telling of the Tasmanian Aboriginal experience, which is was not necessarily from the perspective of Tasmanian Aboriginal artists, but they were involved and it was very, very uh, powerful and important for that reason. Um, but getting back to Nitram, yeah, like it's really hard to talk about this film without sort of well, trivialising things. Um, Nancy, what, what did you think of it or how did you well, experience it? Maybe I can continue on that, mm. you know, the idea of, well, not idea, but uh, experience of trauma. And yeah. I, as a site, that place has, a, it has a history of cycles of abuse. Mm. And until we're able to digest these traumas, I think it, things are just going hopefully not, but things often do keep repeating like they're on a a broken record and maybe they manifest in different ways. So, you know, we have obviously the Black War, um, the so-called Black War in settler time, um, the treatment of the convicts, which were obviously from a particular class, uh, particularly hard done by and were, you know, in extremely harsh conditions and that kind of, um, or, you know, we could even think about all the migrants that moved here after the you know, World War Two, the Eastern European people who were, you know, measured and um, analysed and were asked not to also speak their language and, you know, into assimilate into so-called um, middle-class white Tasmania, um, which get, gets back to Nitram, which is, I think, in a sense, it's that class um, thing that maybe there was three classes, you know, playing out in the sense you've got kind of the normalised, 
the normie surfer kind of culture that he was, that the protagonist was aspiring to be, but kind of came from not quite a um, stable enough background to, you know, have this, say, holistic lifestyle. And then, you know, obviously met his benefactor, who, you know, was a, I think that was done really well. Mm. Um, her, the wealthy, eccentric, heiress. yeah, heiress, Tattersall's heiress. I really think that that was, um, yeah, it was nuanced. Played by Essie Davis, who we're going to talk about in an, in another yeah. context in a minute as well. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing that, I mean, there's lots to say about it, but I won't take up too much airspace, but what I thought um, in terms of fiction and truth-telling, you know, you noticed at the start they really, they had the documentary footage of, you know, the firecracker thing, which really kind of made you think, oh, was that him? Um, you know, but then right at the end they had, this is a fictional, you know, this tokenistic, and, you know, this is, a, you know. And it was like, if we have to keep doing these bureaucratic things because of, um, you, know, it, you know, it stifles maybe mm. uh, something. But my main point was the gun, the gun practice and how it was, the film seemed to be making a point to debunk the conspiracy theories that he couldn't have actually done it because he couldn't have physically actually held those guns. Um, and you would see in the film him practising ah, and okay. that kind of training. And so it was, in a sense, that's what I read into it, kind of also to debunk those conspiracy mm, theories. That's really myths, interesting. Which his mum was also buying into. Oh, in real life. In real life at, at one stage, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just going back to to talk about the fireworks thing. So there's a there's some archival footage at the start of the film where the real figure when he is a child is shown in TV news footage has Hirsch himself playing with fireworks, and that was a really interesting way to start the film. Basically, he is asked by the journalists, "Are you gonna are you gonna keep playing with fireworks now that you've hurt yourself?" And uh, the the boy says, "Oh yeah." So that sort of summed up part of the psychology, I guess, part of the problem. Um, but just touching on the conspiracy theory stuff for a moment, like the first issue of the publication hasn't been released yet, so I'm not sure how I'm going to approach sharing this particular one on social media, but I do know that I'm going to have a zero, zero tolerance policy for any discussion of conspiracy theories or any, I guess I should say, promotion of conspiracy theories because you can discuss them, but... So that's a whole other layer to this as well as just the garbage around it um, and maybe that's part of the justification that the filmmakers might have as well is to sort of set some of that straight, as you say, Nancy. Um, Paul, did you have any any reflections that you wanted to share about it? Well, I didn't grow up in Tasmania. I've only been here for about 10 years. Um, I did first... My first trip to Tasmania was about at the time when the court case was happening. Mm. And I did go to Port Arthur um, to have a look at the place. And full disclosure, I am a ghoul. I have been interested in awful people and the awful things they do and, and the, the situations that they are in and create. So I um, had watched Snowtown as well and was interested in that um, for similar reasons. But I, I can totally empathise, like, people are very, are very hurt by this thing happening. And 
I think, particularly hurt because it is a, a smaller, tighter community and it had done so much damage to so many people and it seemed, I, I suppose, that nothing could have happened in a community like that. And having a movie like this seemed so important to to show that it is possible and how it is possible and what sort of situations can can lead to to something like that happening and sort of yeah and it's not a it's not a reenactment it's a, a movie it's it's a, a story about um, something that has happened it's it's retelling it's 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 I know as you're saying because it has been filmed elsewhere I think that emphasizes that. You know, they're not interested in reenacting the thing. They're not interested in championing the the events. They're interested in telling this story and and sort of explaining this situation or this sort of this grouping of events or even this phenomena of this character who has zero empathy and and you know finds themselves in these or even creates these situations that they can't get out of. Mm, I, I thought it was a very important film and and. Again, I am not. I did not grow up here. I've not been affected whatsoever. I never saw the person. I never saw anybody who has been affected, at least as far as I know. And I think I'd have to live here a lot longer before people started sharing their stories about it. But it seems to me the way that we watch war movies or watch reenactments of of assassinations and, and, and things like that, it it is a way to to deal with it. Um, not necessarily to, to make it better, but to help process and to see where similar situations may occur and ways to, to be aware of, of things like that happening. Aside from all of that, um, I love the, the, the work that um, Justin Kurtzel has been doing from Snowtown to like that was the first one that I saw he was at a premiere in Sydney and sort of was giving a talk of it and you know there was this dreamy sort of movie with this awful awful centre and sort of the the, the horror in, in being so close to these dreadful people and and then you have Macbeth and, and you have the, the true history of the Kelly gang and it's just such a, a, an amazing filmmaker and I think I think somebody who has such who has thought so deeply about things um, could be given some leeway um, could be given some trust um, as far as watching a film like that um, Mm. And it's obvious that they have taken that into account. I don't think that they've made those choices to to please people. I think they've made those choices out of res- respect, but also to also separate the movie from the actuality. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, there's a whole discussion to be had about whether the um, Tasmanian government, Screen Tasmania, should have supported this project or whether Screen, Screen Australia or Film Victoria should have because they all um, apparently refused to or you know, didn't approve funding applications. Um, I don't know whether anyone's got anything, any thoughts about that. I think it's too politically hot for them to handle. Yeah. It's pretty clear that they don't want to have to write a press release defending a film like that. They just, it's in yeah. a too hard basket. I mean, I think if it was purely judged on artistic merits, it should have absolutely been yeah. funded. And obviously so. that's why that's the way you'd hope that a project like that would be treated. But Which, it, which it, cuts to the heart of 
yes. how this manifested in the first place of mm-hmm. just people not wanting to touch things that are too difficult. Well, and the original problem is that you know that uh, that man was obviously falling through the cracks of society in all manner of ways, mm. and then mm. had this extraordinary turn of events where he you know, befriended an heiress and she left him a lot of money and suddenly had means to do things that he may not have otherwise done. I mean, it is a fairly extraordinary story, even just as a story. Well, I mean, the film doesn't cover all of the details and it it simplifies a lot of things about the case, but um, I think it was valuable to me because, like I think you said, Ella, I didn't read a huge amount about it after the sort of crimes and the conviction because I didn't really want to, like I didn't want to sort of dwell on it. And people who were involved, I'm sure, didn't have that luxury and they probably know all of the horrible details about all of it. So maybe they don't sort of need this film, I guess, because they've already thought about it more than they ever want to. Um, But what was really interesting to me in writing this review and looking into sort of where fact and fiction sort of came together was actually seeing the way that person was treated by the bureaucracy and by the healthcare system and various things like that. And just seeing that there's a number of red flags all the way through of like, okay, there's someone who's not coping, their parents can't manage them. I think at one point there was actually a note on his file. I don't know whether it was his Centrelink file, something like, um, you know, shouldn't be trusted out of his parents' care is talking about guns or, you know, like all of these things that in a more functional society surely would trigger some kind of massive support or some kind of intervention or... So, so yeah, it sort of brings up to me that um, not talking about things is is certainly contributing to the problem in some ways and did contribute to the problem in this case, because even, you know, you see in the film his parents try, but they don't really talk about it either. They don't even talk about it to each other, really, like what's going on with this guy, like why is he acting like this? Um, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much we could talk about with this. Does anyone have any final thoughts before we move on? I'd like to add that the, the movie the movie that I saw didn't seem to only be about that. It seemed to cover a lot of other ground, a lot of other topics like um, showing emotion um, about the way that transactions are, are done, like, you know, buying things and the willingness people um, in the film, people shown as willing to, to sell people things, not just to that character and not just the guns, but also to sell cars and sell yeah, this and to sell that. that. And yeah. there were a whole lot of things being talked about in that film. And it wasn't purely about how does a person do this thing. There were, they took the opportunity to, to address a whole, well, I'm not sure what they're addressing or whether I was just reading mm. into it, but it seemed like there are a lot of other things going on the in that gifting film. Gifting also was something. Mm. Mm. The bull, the, the, the talisman, and sure, apart from those sure. commercial The way that people interact and, and sort of the well, way that people fail to interact. Nancy was alluding to the sort of class system or the, the three class tiers potentially, and we often talk about Australia being a classless society, which is obviously ridiculous, but... Um, in, yeah, like, as you're saying, like, money was a way that he gained acceptance from various people. Um, money was the way that the, the Helen character, the heiress, sort of gained his acceptance in a way. So it's a very complicated dynamic to do with capitalism and all sorts of things, as mm. you say, Paul. Yeah, beyond 
just the sort of facts of the case, I guess. I think you talk about the the scene where the gun seller sells him, you know, most of his ammunition and just how mundane that there is that moment. I think for me that's the moment of the film where he says, do you have a licence? And, and he, he just shrugs oh, sure. and the guy goes, oh, Oof. no worries. You, you, you're you're not going to register them, are you? And I just sat there <laughs> thinking... Oh, that I wonder if that gun seller is still alive. Like how mu- how must he feel? Yeah. Like yeah, all of the air just went yeah. out of the cinema <laughs> during that scene. People were just like, ah, oh, okay, now we're here. Just, yeah. yeah. And then at the end, them saying actually, since those gun laws have been introduced, actually none of the states and territories necessarily comply with them anyway, and that there's much more weaponry in countries mm. now than there was then. More so. individual weapons. <laughs> I mean, p- possibly not the semi-automatic kind, but nevertheless, it's something that you can't be complacent about because um, governments change and soften laws all the time. Mm. If for nothing else, the movie is useful in, in sort of keeping people worried about that sort of thing happening. I think so. And I think uh, some of the discussion around it has been that it's also really useful, obviously, in the North American context where they're... Mm gun situation is quite different than here. Um, So if that film can really help with that somehow, I guess that would be a huge thing. So we'll we'll move on from that. Um, I feel like we could discuss it for a long time, but it's uh, (laughs) it's only so much time in this podcast. Um, I wanted to talk about Paul's piece, um, which I've sort of labelled as a response rather than a review because it's not... It's not really a review. Um, it incorporates sort of personal um, history and opinion, but it also does talk about the recent production of um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was at the Theatre Royal, uh, produced uh, by John X Presents. Mm. Um, so that was sort of the hook to sort of hang that piece on because that was a really recent show and I wanted to have somebody writing about it. But um, obviously you went into a lot of um, other areas as well. Um, Paul, because you have a very long history with the Rocky Horror Show yes, and I the do. Rocky Horror Picture Show, which are two slightly different things, but almost the same thing. Um, do you want to talk just really briefly about, maybe don't even need to go into your association with the show, because I think people can read about that, but um, what, how you approach this piece. I think, I think you actually do need to, te- like, to oh, okay, warn people, bit, yeah. because I don't think there's any piece of any book or piece of art that I have the same relation. I mean, I I love how dedicated you are to Rocky Horror and I'm fascinated to know that was, for me, the most fascinating thing about it. I have to fess up that I haven't seen Rocky Mm. Horror in any format. Some people Um, haven't. Rocky Horror Virgin, yeah. But, like, I think you need to to briefly explain to people your relationship. In a a casual Um, form. I was fascinated with Rocky Horror, I guess, at a um, at a time where it's such a long story, um, I think, <laughs> or it's sort of it is so so personal to me. I want to tell the whole story, but no, um, I was fascinated with it in high school because um, I think the exciting part about it is it shows adults not behaving in stereotypical ways. Nobody goes and buys a house. They don't have nuclear families. They don't, they don't even behave properly to each other. They sort of 
not just the characters, but the the actors and the people who made the film. Like there are adults made this film. <laughs> it's it's completely. So this is the, obviously the nineteen seventy. Five is it? The, so the, mm. the Jim but, um, the original Well, they film. made the play. I mean, the, the play, play happened. Well. The whole yeah. concept of the thing. But which one the, did the you play. come across first? Was it the film? Oh, it was the film first. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the easiest one to get a hold of. Um, yeah. And you know, going to the theatre and seeing a production. I'm not sure it was running at the time. Oh, I might have missed the Redford Livermore version. But so tell me, the first time you saw it in obviously in film version, mm. like. What was your immediate reaction? Like, what did you think and feel? Like, how did it, how did it, it, it obviously had some deep impact on you. I'm just wanting to, yeah. like, was it an explosion of? Yeah, um, I think it was the voice, hearing Tim Curry's voice, because mm-hmm. um, he has such a, a strong and, and aggressively projected voice. It is, it's highly dramatic, overdramatic, and I hadn't heard anybody sing like that, at least not with the amount of power that um, he has in his voice and seeing this spooky and, you know, he's been based, he's all gothic and spooky and, and looking, but he's also got this sexuality and he's got this hyper, hyper excitement about himself. He is so happy to be himself and, you know, everybody else should be that happy uh, uh, with themselves or everybody else should be as happy for him to be himself, to be in that room. And that combination of all of these things, this this power and, and sensuality and, you know, when you're a kid you don't have any power and sort of the sensuality that you might be experiencing or experimenting with, you know, isn't given voice and isn't a addressed or anything like that and here it is this concentrated dose um happening like i'd seen the time warp i've seen the video for that and i was like yay great hunchbacks and spooky people yay what a great song rock and roll but that moment when tim curry sort of unveiled and was just singing at the camera was just such a a a game changer i think in as far as ways that you could be well, it's the unapologetic sort of um, gender fluidity of who he is, it's I guess, in that not role. not just unapologetic. He's fully excited about <laughs> yeah. being whatever he, it crosses his mind to be at any particular moment. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's not just comfortable. He's like, you should be me. This yeah. is this is an exciting thing to be. So it's a radical. Um, it's just radical for for mm. many reasons. But did you have yeah. an association with the movie or the or the uh, show, Nancy? Yes. Well, when I was probably in primary school, I um, was fortunate enough to come across Rocky Horror Picture Show, the movie. Yeah. And I was probably watched at the same the time I did. Came. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it grabbed me, and it was like, and it has been a well, a motif or something that. Um, I would look at every few weeks, not not these days, but uh, at the time just thinking, this is, what is this, you know, and driving around Tasmania and you would look up alleyways and dirt roads and think, is that where he lives? Or is that where the Rocky Horror Picture no Show is? Because there's no explanation of what's going on. Where it might this be. thing is just happening <laughs> at you and you're just like... Yeah. Am I seeing this? And you have to watch it again and go, what is going on? Why is this doing this thing? Like, and I guess in retrospect, this kind of, yeah, you know, Transylvanian science <laughs> protagonist, um, you know, and, and the whole kind of carnivalesque and transgression and vaudeville about it with rock and roll um, and, you know, this kind of 
that meets kind of these opera, you know, panto dames, but not necessarily, it's not necessarily a bawdy panto, which is, it's much more complex. Mm -hmm. And that's, I just love the whole subjectivity of um, all these eccentric people. And it was so relieving. Uh, Yes. And I think in some way, because the, the, the actors had played these characters a thousand times each, and so by the time they came to make the movie, you know, there were no um, gaps in the armour. They were fully formed characters and fully in control of themselves. And I love that it's also such an Australian, uh, has such an Australian background in the sense, Jim Sharman, who, who wrote the... Oh, the, Brian Thompson, who did all of the, the sets and, and designs Nell, and that kind who of stuff. And who was the tap dancer, mm-hmm. who uh, lived in New York... Um, and you know, so on. Um, it was. It always felt like this is this is ours, <laughs> and and in a sense related to that whole history of, um, you know, vaudeville and kind of mm. more street uh, streetwise rock and roll, in that sense. Yeah. So what I guess I was wondering because I didn't go and see Rocky Horror here, for various reasons, but uh, my husband hadn't, hasn't seen Rocky Horror and I refused to... I said, you have to see the film first and then you can go and see <laughs> the production because it's just not, not going to be right. The other way around. So my question to you is, you know, was it bringing all those ragtag of elements out rather than kind of panto pillow punches or...? Um, um, it's, uh, it's interesting that you do say ragtag because I find the... The um, frayed, smudged, dirty, ripped kind of version that you see. Um, with theatre or with a lot of productions that I've seen over the last 20 years, I guess, even 30 years, um, it's become tidied up, um, like almost Vegasized, like Sanitized. people are in. Oh, no. Well, I think okay. it's a practical thing. I'm not sure that they're trying to sanitize the thing mm. because they do often play on, ooh, shocking, shocking kind of thing, which is, you know, read the article. Um, But I think it's practical that you can't have costumes that are falling apart because they'll fall apart. You know, you want them to be the same and you want to have a a repeat sort of experience for everybody, which is, you know, a a difficult thing. Then why go to the (laughs) theatre? Well, it is an entertainment. Um, It has been... Turned, turned into an entertainment or was it an art thing? I think it was an, uh, an indulgence to start with. <laughs> like the play was an indulgence. It was these incredible things that were going on. But what I saw in the, the production that happened was a, a tidying of it. But I understand that that's practical and sort of all of the, the interesting parts of it were were there and the, the story is there and the, the characters are there. Um, but, you know, you're not going to get the same experience that you got as a kid and you're not going to get the, you know, things hanging by a thread which you're allowed to do in film sort of mm. in a live experience. Well, it's That's now not a, a very established piece of culture too. It's not an, sort of mm. an emerging thing as it was at the time. We won't talk about it for too much longer, but I think um, it was interesting in your piece um, you mentioned Grace Tame making an appearance in the show for the Midnight um, Halloween show, the sort of discussion around consent and sexuality that happened within the context of the production. I think that they were conscious of things being, or society in general being more aware, um, or at least 
Yes, of it being part of our more general conversation now um, about consent and about gender and about identity and about, yeah, uh, those those main things being part of our, our ongoing and present conversation, how that would relate to, to Rocky Horror, which has... People can play loose with those concepts, I mean, to, to, to be subtle about it. Um, mm. And yes, they... They definitely had been thinking about that when they put the production on and even down to, to Frank being less of a, an aggressive character. I've seen him in a much more aggressive form, mm. like Reg Livermore used to frighten people <laughs> and would jump out off the stage and, and you know, bully people in the audience. And yeah, maybe that just doesn't fly at the moment. <laughs> That's not, not what people are after. It's almost like in the context of Me Too and what's happening at the moment, certain types of aggression in the story don't feel like they really make sense as much, I suppose, so it maybe has to fall back into other ways of shocking people. To, sure. Well, the, the manipulated consent that is part of the, the, the play, part of the story, is like, uh, this is this is messed up. Like, this isn't, you know, this isn't clever or tricky. Um, this is kind of what's going on here. Yeah. And having Grace Tame there, but also... Mm, ah, sure, sure. (laughs) But also not just the um, Grace Tame being there, but also the way that they performed and the way that they also worked with, and I've forgotten the name of the the association, but um, they are a group who have been working with theatre and working with how to approach intimacy and how to work with consent and to make sure that everybody is comfortable and, and people aren't, liberties aren't being taken. Which is interesting when you come to the audience and participation and whether mm, that's enforced or not. It's complicated. So it was uh, a really heartening thing to find that the, the play had or the producers had gone to gone to that group and they had all done the workshops and they all had all and you could see it in practice sort of the way that they moved with each other there was sort of you know some people were hands-on or some people were hands-off it Mm. you know they'd worked out where things where things should be which is fantastic and Mm. that uh Hara who was playing Frankenfurter came out at the end and sort of made the speech and, and explained this to everybody and you know they made a got a collection so that this work could continue on so well, yeah um i mean a number of us here work in film and theater as well so it's sort of also an industrial issue i guess mm. to kind of make clear maybe to audiences yeah, we have thought about all of this and the rights of the performers are being respected and we haven't taken this lightly. So maybe within that framework you can then depict all sorts of things but you're sort of um, making it clear that there, is an, there are ethics around it, um, which is quite complicated to do in the context of an actual performance. But um, Sure, very and something that is written, there is a script, but yeah, they were showing an evolution in, in understanding and awareness of, of a number of different issues that sort of find their way into Rocky Horror. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, the other thing that was notable about that production, and I am sorry that I didn't get to see it because I have a young child and I'm not getting out (laughs) at night as much as I would like to at the moment, but it was notable, I think, because it was a fully professional musical um, stage locally and we have 
tradition here of some of the big musicals being pro-am so that they are not actually fully professional. And I think, um, you know, I hope someone will correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but um, for to move into that fully professional space I think is really promising, um, even if, you know, most of the key cast was not Tasmanian, uh, some of them were, and I think that that's a really significant move towards that. But segueing from that into our final piece of art that we want to discuss today, um, another, I believe, fully professional production, which was The Maids um, from Archipelago Productions at the Playhouse. So obviously this is a relatively new theatre company for Tasmania, um, Marta Dusseldorp and Ben Winspear, um, who are you know, locals now but have sort of recently, uh, I think Ben is from a Tasmanian background, but Marta's moved down here. So it was it's pretty um, interesting production for a number of reasons in the local context. One of them being that there were two very high-powered lead performers in Marta Dusseldorp and Essie Davis playing the two maids. It's quite unusual to, I guess, see two actors of that profile on the stage in Hobart, particularly on the stage of the Playhouse Theatre, which, for those who don't know, is usually home to the Hobart Repetition Society. Their standard fare is more along the lines of Agatha Christie or maybe Oscar Wilde if they're feeling really... Crazy. Um, so, which, which they're still very good. Yes, but. and there's certainly a place for that and a lot of their productions are really quality productions. But I, I thought it was really interesting being in that space when I saw it and particularly probably an older audience, I would say, um, and seeing this really challenging work by Jean Genet um, in that context with sort of everyone getting their chocolate bars and having their gossip and their catch-up and then watching something that's just like, oh, my God, what is this? Um, what did everyone else like, – we haven't got long to talk about it, but I'd just love to hear what anyone else um, felt experiencing that production. I've seen this before in Sydney with um, another two amazing actresses, Isabelle Huppert, the French actress, and um, Kate Blanchett. And I actually just Googled it then because I couldn't remember who the mistress was. Oh, yeah. It was actually Elizabeth Debicki. Yes, yes. Interesting. <laughs> Which I think that was probably pre her, you know, major meteoric yeah. rise. But obviously she absolutely looks like a mistress and would have totally nailed that role. Um Again, in that production, I, I went along because who doesn't want to see those two actresses do their thing? Mm. They're absolutely sterling. And same reason I went down here, because I really wanted to see Marta and Essie do their stuff. It is extremely hard work, that play. Like, I can't say, and, I, you know, I, as you say, it's nice to feel like you're the young person in the audience, because <laughs> you definitely did feel like that down here. And I met a, a colleague who is a bit older than me. He said, oh, that was a bit intense. And I'm like, yeah, intense. Yep, intense. Um, I don't love the play, but I did really enjoy seeing those women do their stuff. And I think as you put in your, unfortunately for, um, it's Stephanie Jack who mm-hmm. played yeah. the mistress. It is a it is a more minor role in the play, Bloody hard to go up against those other two. Yeah. Uh, I, for me, Essie was the standout. I mean, I've not really seen much of her. I always think about her as Friday Fisher, to be honest, even though she has done a lot of other stuff. Mm. But to see her do that role, she was just totally transformative. And it was... Yeah. But it was... A hard slog, and I needed Did to... you feel like you understood the story? Because obviously you've seen the play before, so you probably did know the story, but did you feel like you 
got it from that from this production? Well, I think part of the problem is that the, I don't think the story really resonates for me. Like mm-hmm. it just didn't resonate for me. Like I, I realise it's a Jean Genet play and it's, you know, it's not a contemporary play. It yeah. does it, I don't think it really tra- they'd managed to transport it to make it feel like it belonged to me now. Yeah. In a way that I really wanted to, even though they they had so much going for them in terms of. Mm. The actresses, the set design, the music, you know, that was all yeah, pretty good. But I didn't – I just felt like I was being assaulted, um, you know, in an artistic kind of in way. But way, I didn't yeah. feel like I was being moved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think I felt that too, that it was a really impressive sort of intellectual experience but yeah. not necessarily getting to the – guts of it in an emotional way as much as it could have. Yeah, I mean, obviously, spoiler at the end when they, you know, die and, like, and kind of just don't really care. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you're not supposed to, but also I did think this original play was written, was first performed in Paris in 1947 and Jean Genet is a very radical figure in terms of, like, he was a criminal. And I believe and it was put in the, in the round it oh, was, was experienced it? Right. in the and round. And I just would love to know more about that original production because I just think, okay, 1947, and something that was like radical. this, yeah, it would be, have mm. been so radical, so mm. shocking, maybe along the lines of what we were talking about earlier with the Rocky Horror impact, like it would have been that level of impact, yeah. well, probably even more because it would have been so shocking. Mm. Or oh, with a false start and everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and the sort of suggestion of incest and the the... Well, the transgression. The transgression that, that in so many I didn't ways. see the one down here, but, but yeah. I get the impression that those, you know, hidden hidden circus theatre worlds are maybe left out. Yeah. Because um, so people kind of are like, just I, assuming that theatre has to be a particular way. Yeah, like how could a contemporary production of it capture some of that? Like what is so not being shocking for the sake of it, but obviously it's a play that is about something and he was um, trying to say something um, that probably was quite um, pointed. I don't think it was an intellectual exercise for him when he wrote it. Um, You saw it, didn't you, Paul? Yeah, I did. What did you think? Um, I didn't know what it was about um, when I went to go and see it. I just went and saw it blind. Um, I had heard about the the Cape Blanchett sort of version and thought, wow, this must be pretty good. <laughs> um, and was really excited to see a production like that, uh, like a cerebral sort of artistic thing of that level being performed at the Playhouse, which I thought was such a, a giving thing to do. Yeah. Um, whatever reason I just thought it was such a beautiful thing to have a production like that and to have actors like that performing at the Playhouse which was incredible um I I cared what happened at the end (laughs) um and yeah I was just on for the ride and watching these two amazing performances and I think Essie had the advantage in having the the more flamboyant or the more active character, whereas Marta had sort of the more steady and more sort of um, supportive, mm. uh, no, supportive is a loaded word. Um, no, but that is true. She did. More have, she got the more interesting character, so mm. she had more to work whereas with. Marta was the rock kind of yeah. thing and sort of. But I love to see Marta with the black rubber gloves and all and that kind of yeah. kinky sort of stuff. I it looked amazing. And yeah, yeah, but I wasn't looking at it. I don't think I was trying to be critical um, of it. I was there to see these amazing 
actors and to see a, a production like that and also to see Ben Winspear's direction in the Playhouse, or mm. just to see it anywhere, really. Mm. It was such a, a gift for something like that to happen yeah. here. And I think I, I'm fairly critical of it in my review, and I kind of say I don't feel like their interpretation sort of came to grips with it in a contemporary way. But at the same time, his direction was impressive because it is an incredibly complex play. And even though I think some of the plot might not have been as clear as it should have been, it still was never boring to me and it was like really finely calibrated and all the turns were there and it sort of flowed. It's just, yeah, I would have liked more from it, but I, yeah, I hope I don't sort of undersell like the technical achievements of it. And, you know, the production company, Archipelago Productions, like just the fact that they're doing things in a slightly different way, I think is nice for us, for some, you know, some new blood to kind of come in and say, oh, well, let's put on this this big production. Let's have at more theatre the for more people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're in a really interesting period of flux at the moment with Tasmanian theatre because some of the companies that have been dominant are sort of struggling a little bit and new things are emerging and festivals are sort of, you know, rising and falling and COVID and all this yeah. stuff. So. It seems so hard to, to recover after that, that period of, of not being able to do anything. Yeah, so a large part of the enjoyment of that show was just, like, getting to go to theatre at all. It was just like, oh, my God, we're at a show. <laughs> and the Playhouse is just such a beautiful theatre. It's so it is, it's yeah. just so nice to be yeah. inside it. And I think oh. there were no shows on, um, on the mainland at that point, so we were quite lucky at that particular moment when that happened. I think we should probably try to wrap up because we've been talking for a while about all of this. We could probably talk for a lot longer, but we'd need to get some snacks and glasses of wine probably um, maybe next time but um, I want to thank everyone um, for your contributions not only to the podcast but your really thoughtful and incisive uh, writing for issue one of Memory Palace. I'm very excited to have this calibre of people involved to launch the project and to sort of try to work out with me the tone of it and what it is going to be, which is obviously still in flux. Thanks for inviting us. It's oh, great to you. be able to contribute yeah, good to on the you, Brian. Oh, making this thing. Yeah. I'm trying. It's uh, it's it's been a lot of work just to do one issue. So let's see <laughs> let's see what happens. But um, I think it will become clearer like how it needs to work as it goes on, and hopefully it'll get some support and some readers and listeners. Um, it's so, so important to have those archives and these details. So yeah, I think that's a large part of it is just recording some of these thoughts as we're having them and kind of keeping a record of, you know, where things are at at this point in time. I'm not going to have too many show notes for this podcast because the publication itself is other show notes, really. But I'll make sure people can find Nancy Morrow-Flood and Ella Kennedy and Paul McNally online should they wish to and talk to you further about your work and okay so i'll wrap up now and thank you very much everyone for being part of this really interesting conversation with me thank you thanks bryony and good night (laughs) (laughs) this is bryony with a small clarification when nancy talked about taz dancer's artistic director having recently passed away that's sadly true annie grieg died in november 2021 
but it should be noted that she had not been the artistic director of Taz Dance since 2015, and Adam Wheeler took over that role three years ago. Also, Paul mentioned an organisation that supported the Hobart production of Rocky Horror. That was the Sexual Assault Support Service. It's a Tasmanian community-based 24-7 crisis response and counselling service supporting survivors of recent and historical sexual abuse and assault. Useful to know. To get the next issue of Memory Palace in your inbox and occasional bonus content, make sure you join our mailing list. Go to memory-palace.com.au to subscribe. You can also subscribe to this podcast and rate it on the app that you're listening to right now. And please do invite your friends to subscribe as well. If you read or hear something you like, share it online. We rely on your support to ensure that this project will continue and grow. This episode of Memory Palace was produced and edited by Bryony Kidd and recorded and edited by the Green Room Recording Studio. The theme music is by Catherine Joy. Memory Palace is published by Stranger Enterprises PTY Limited, and the first issue was supported by Bellandina Small Grants.